Hey, this is a Hakawari production. Bill Gates is a name we've heard a lot over the last year, and sometimes what we hear is simply fake news. The truth is, conspiracy theories about powerful people are not new. We've heard outrageous accusations about many of them before Bill ever came along. Billionaire George Soros has been accused of plotting a revolution to destroy America and of paying people to protest in Romania. And the Rockefellers have been accused of being part of the Illuminati, trying to create a new world order. Some things we'll never know. But many conspiracy theories have been disproven, and that's certainly true in this case. Today we're looking beyond the sensational headlines at what Bill Gates and his partner Melinda are actually doing, and what their real goals are. My guest today is the Deputy Director of Global Policy and Advocacy at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's also the author of a recent book called The Responsible Globalist. Joining us from London, please welcome Hassan Damluji. Hassan, welcome. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be invited. How are you doing? I'm well. You know, uh, you know, no one has had a great year, I think, unless you're a big investor in Tesla. But um, definitely uh, conscious that I'm one of the lucky ones that's able to work from home, you know, that has a family at home. That means, uh, you know, lockdown life is richer than if I was on my own. So, you know, like everyone, it's been a, a tough year. I'm here in London where we're still in, in a lockdown. Um, but, um, you know, I'm okay. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. We're all in it together. Um, I want to start with a question that's at the top of everyone's mind, I think, when we hear the name the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which uh, is that the foundation has spent billions of dollars over the last 20 years trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems like poverty, disease, uh, and inequity, and global warming. And yet, your boss, Bill Gates, who happens to be one of your bosses, who happens to be the world's fourth richest man, has really been vilified over the last year um, since he stepped down from the Microsoft board in March of 2020 to focus on philanthropy. He's been accused of leading a class of global elites. Some people believe he's leading efforts to depopulate the world and even of wanting to microchip people. So I just just wondering, how do you respond to all of this? Yeah. Um, I mean, Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, set up the foundation 21 years ago now. And he really has been uh, full time on the foundation ever since he stepped down as CEO of Microsoft in 2008. So it's been a long time that he and his wife have really been dedicating not just their money, but most of their time to helping to reduce childhood mortality. You know, millions of lives have been saved because of the initiatives that we work on with others. Um, you know, this is a time of unprecedented sharing of information, the creation of information. You know, for something like Wikipedia is, is a pretty high quality, globally available for free, you know, group sourced encyclopedia. This is a time when people know more truth than ever before, but it is also a time um, where, uh, you know, a lot of people are increasingly doubtful of the established facts and that there's um, more and more room for the creation and spread of, of theories that say, hey, you know, the government that's meant to be looking out for you is actually against you. 
the drugs that are meant to make you safe are actually uh, harming you. Um, the nice guy that you were told was a philanthropist is actually, you know, out, out for bad. And so I think it, it's inevitable that um, in that climate, in the same way that pretty much every government has faced that kind of attack, um, you know, vaccines in general have uh, their, their doubters, that this um, person or, you know, and our foundation, which are involved in, in vaccinating kids because it's the best way to save their lives across the world are also subject to some of those doubts so you know i think it's a phenomenon we live with in these times i think most people don't give it a lot of credence um but unfortunately that's the world you know we live in i think so this pandemic covid-19 it's obviously something that the foundation is very involved in trying to help with across the world they've contributed uh from last i checked at least 1.75 billion so far correct me if my numbers are off a lot of this yeah, money no, that's right that's right okay good uh, a lot of this money has gone towards the medical supplies um but also r&d for vaccines and treatments in poor countries um and i know that there was a fresh 250 million announced in december despite the fact that we now have a vaccine. So what is the foundation doing now, now that we have more treatments, we have, we've developed vaccines? How are they helping to um, accelerate the process of getting through and over this pandemic? So you're right. I mean, we are in a different phase now than we were um, before. If you go back to last year, um, people like us who are putting money into it, as well as the scientists out there, were scrambling to see if we could find a vaccine at all, you know, if we could find any treatments that reduce the chance of mortality, um, if we could get tests um, cheap enough and fast enough that they could be really useful and rolled out in poorer countries. And especially on the vaccine front, it really wasn't clear. Uh, I think a lot of people will look back and say, yeah, it was obvious that a vaccine would, uh, would work. And of course, we have you know, several now. But actually, Um, people have been working on vaccines for malaria and HIV uh, for decades, and we don't have one that, that's effective. So there's been an incredible success story in terms of the, uh, the research and development to say, okay, not only do we have one vaccine, we were hoping one of them would come out, be, be uh, able to uh, you know, successfully immunize people. In fact, Almost every vaccine that has been developed has proven to work. So that's been fantastic. The question now is how do you actually reach um, the poorest people in the world? Because what tends to happen when uh, vaccines are developed is that the richest countries pay you know, more money, get all of the early supply, and uh, uh, look after their populations. And then years, decades later, the poorest countries get access to it. 20 years ago, when we set ourselves up as a foundation, one of the first things we did was we set up, alongside others, an organization called Gavi, which is designed for exactly this. How do you get vaccines to the poorest uh, countries quicker and cheaper? Because countries used to have to make their own purchases. You may be aware of the stories that South Africa was being asked to pay more than the EU for uh, the same vaccine. Because if you're a company, there's really no uh, economy of scale in small uh, contracts with many different poorer countries. So what Gavi does is it gathers money from donors every five years so that they have billions of dollars. They go to the vaccine companies and say, okay, I want X billion vaccines. 
Um, what's your best price? And then they ensure that they're fairly distributed across the world. So that's a system that we've helped to stand up over the last 20 years and that has already saved millions of lives and got the price of vaccines way down to a fraction of what they were before and got the proportion of kids who are vaccinated in the world up from something like 60 percent uh, to over 80 percent. So that system now exists and we're now backing that system alongside others to um, get the COVID vaccines out. So Gavi is is uh, working as part of this thing called COVAX, which a lot of people have heard of, the, the vaccine initiative that's aimed to say, look, rather than Ghana getting its first vaccines 10 years after Britain, actually Ghana got its first vaccines uh, in February. Um, and uh, Britain started vaccinating December, three months. And it's also uh, worth bearing in mind how much better this time round is uh, than in the past in terms of vaccines quickly getting to the poorest countries. So that's what we're laser focused on. So the hope is that all countries will be able to vaccinate uh, 20% of their population or more by the end of this year. That's quite impressive. Um, when when this pandemic started, there was this video that surfaced of Bill Gates speaking in 2015 at a TED conference in Vancouver, where he said, if anything kills over 10 million people over the next few decades, it's likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. And that proved to be true to some degree. So far, there have been 2.75 million deaths around the world uh, reportedly due to COVID-19. And hopefully we won't reach the number that he predicted. But Bill Gates has also been an important figure, I think, in reminding people that there is no doubt that this is going to happen again uh, at some point, and we need to prepare. So is the foundation doing anything to try to prevent the next deadly virus? Yes, and we've been doing this for years. You know, when um, people looked back and, and found that footage, um, you know, some people said, ah, this proves that somehow the Gates Foundation was, was planning this. Other people said, wow, you know, what a genius to be so foresighted. But the truth is, many people have been saying this for years. You know, one of the, if not the number one risk on the UK government's risk register of the threats that face the UK um, in 2019 was a pandemic virus. You know, this is not something that people who are involved in infectious disease or who are involved in planning for what might go wrong in the world um, weren't aware of. What we've been out there for years saying is more needs to be done to prepare. Um, and, and one uh, really important initiative we set up in uh, 2016 alongside uh, other donors, alongside a set of countries, Japan, Germany, uh, UK and others, Norway, was uh, it's called the Coalition for Epidemics Preparedness Innovation. It's CEPI for short. And what they do is they pick the viruses that are most likely to threaten um, uh, a pandemic. So, for example, Middle East Respiratory sy uh, Syndrome, MERS, was one of them that they had picked uh, already, as well as others. And they said, let's actually develop the vaccine now. See, companies don't have any incentive to develop a vaccine if there's only been one case of something, or 10 cases, or even 100 or 1,000 cases, right? Because there's no market for a vaccine against a disease that hardly exists. But as we know now, those numbers can quickly spread. And so what this uh, organization is about is saying, let's get money from donors and governments and fund scientists to get the vaccine ready now. This is one of the learnings from Ebola, uh, another you know pandemic threat that 
thankfully did not rip across the world, although it was very destructive in Africa, is that they realized that there was actually a vaccine for Ebola developed, but no one had actually taken it forward because Ebola doesn't really exist, right? There's no, there's no market. So we're trying to fix that by having a system that develops the vaccine in advance. Um, there's a lot more. And so that's something that we've been pushing for since 2016. And, and now they're trying to replenish their resources and get, and get more funding. I, I hope they're more successful. Um, you know, they raised a lot of money before, but nowhere near enough. Um, I hope they're, they're more successful now because people understand how important this is. Um, but there are many things that need to be done. If you think about the vaccine manufacturing uh, landscape globally, Many countries, many regions don't have any uh, factories making this stuff. Others do. Then they put an export ban saying, no, you can't export it because we want to keep it for our own population. So looking forward, what should the vaccine manufacturing landscape look like so that we don't have uh, supply shortfalls and politics entering the frame? So, so there are many different ways that um, uh, this can be looked at. You know, at the end of the day, the, as a private foundation, there's only so much that we can or should do. This is a problem for the world, for countries, for politicians, um, but we're um, very keenly following it and trying to add our expertise and our money so that we can um, help be part of the solution. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I think what's great about the foundation that is, is that it has such a global approach, which is something that we'll discuss a bit later um, when we yeah. talk about your book, the book that you wrote. But that's kind of what differentiates it from any other uh, nonprofit organization or any individual country, uh, because it has this global approach. How else do you bring all this data together and find ways and solutions that will, you know, help prevent a global pandemic, which is what it is. If you know, otherwise, if you're focused only on one area, there's a high risk that you'll miss something. Um, but we hear about the foundation's projects in India and places like East Africa. They have, I, I know that there's always a lot going on there. And I know that you're in charge of developing partnerships in the Middle East and also Pakistan, Japan, and Korea. So, what kinds of things is the foundation doing in this neck of the woods? Yeah, well, you know, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa, you're talking about a region which has about 10% of the world's extreme poverty, um, you know, much less than sub-Saharan Africa or, or, or India. But it does have, you know, a significant chunk of the world's extreme poverty and, and some of the diseases and some of the challenges that we face, uh, that, we, that we work on. But it also has uh, a lot of wealth. It has you know, development agencies, the Islamic Development Bank, you know, there, there is capacity as well in the region and, and funding. So the Gates Foundation's philosophy is simple. You know, we will be a part of the solution by working with those others who have resources to help direct those resources to the most impactful way to put our money, but alongside others and to build sustainable uh, programs that can last after, you know, our foundation, Um, which, after all, is a family foundation, you know, based in America. So if we went away, we'd like to see that it would be sustainable and not just a, a one-off. And so there, there are many different things we've done uh, in that, uh, you know, along, along the line of that thinking. But perhaps the biggest is called the Lives and Livelihoods Fund. It's a $2 billion um, development fund based in the Islamic Development Bank. We've put $100 million into. Other Gulf countries have put in Um, 50 to 100 million dollars each. And then the remainder of the money is uh, soft loans from the Islamic Development Bank. And the Islamic Development Bank itself manages that fund uh, uh, with 
you know, oversight from us and the other donors. And we've put a lot of capacity support to help them do that. But it's really owned by the region. Um, and that $2 billion, more than half of which has already been programmed, is spent on health, on helping poor farmers, uh, and on basic infrastructure across the poorest uh, countries in the region. So that's an example of how we try and use our money and our expertise, but not going alone, going with others uh, and creating change that's sustainable. Another good example is uh, in, in polio in, in, uh, in Pakistan, where um, we fund about a third of the global polio uh, program. So we're a big funder, but what, still one of many. Um, but you know, the, the United Arab Emirates has a level of access and credibility and influence in, in Pakistan that no one else has. So we built a program alongside them where they um, they fund their own polio uh, vaccination campaigns that have the trust of the local population because it's not a uh, American or white or Western or what Christian or whatever you whatever you know people might fear uh, type of program, um, but actually from their close neighbors and partners, uh, the United Arab Emirates, um, and we've co-hosted with uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, you know, several uh, events and replenishments. Um, uh, around uh, polio, in, you know, in order to um, bring the world's attention to the issue. So this is a this is a couple of examples um, of, of the type of partnerships. Um, when you think about a global event like Expo happening in Dubai, how can we make sure that that actually highlights the issues that matter to the poorest people? Um, so you know that 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 I hope gives you a sense of the kind of work we're doing. It does. Um, and I know on the website, there are highlights of some of the projects that the foundation has completed or is involved in. But is there a place where we can see like all of the projects or or is it not something that's necessarily documented? So so we, we try and publish, you know, things transparently. Of course, you, there's also the need to just get on with your work. And I think there are a few organizations who are in real time publishing you know every sentence of or every detail of, of what they're doing every grant we make is publicly accessible but it, you know that wouldn't necessarily explain it in a way which is super obvious to understand so you know we try and be transparent but i'm not sure that there's a a web link you could click on and really easily understand in really deep detail everything that we're doing okay well so in other words i'd be happy to help direct you uh, um if there's specific things you want to know. Um, but um, Well, we can just give your number at the end of the of the interview. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your book. Um, you wrote a really interesting book, um, The Responsible Globalist, which was first published in 2019, which is basically about how the world, this is what I got from it, how the world should unite to combat our main challenges that we all face together, such as climate change, pandemic disease, pandemic diseases and the threat of nuclear weapons. And then sure enough, right after you published it, a pandemic happened. Um, so right. has the world united in the face of COVID-19, in your opinion, or are inequities just growing further? Yeah, it was a real coincidence. Um, you know, I didn't think that it necessarily would be pandemic disease. It was one of the ones on my list. But what I postulated in my book is that the tests that surely are ahead of us that are truly global threats are the things which will force us to realize how interconnected we are and that will ultimately 
strengthen our identity as humanity. And we need to have a strengthened identity as humans, you know, um, understanding that we're on this planet together. Um, if we're going to solve those problems, you know, if the Paris Climate Accords are just a tit for tat saying, no, you stop your coal first and I'll keep burning my coal, you know, because I want my country to develop ahead of yours. Unless we understand that we, we're in this together, um, we're not going to solve these challenges. Has the world united in the face of COVID-19? It's interesting. I think if you asked people, the majority of people would say no, because that's the story that we're told. But what I was trying to say earlier, you know, around some of the success with the, the vaccine uh, campaign is that not only the development of the vaccines have been the most successful global collaboration in health research ever, but actually getting vaccines out there fairly across the world has been more successful than ever before. Now, it's still a long way to go. Consider this, you know, what I say in my book is success would be to make the world feel more like a nation. So instead of 200 different nations that really don't think much of each other at all, you actually feel like, hey, in the way that you might say, we're all Lebanese, or we're all British, or we're all Indian. Now, that is still not perfect equality, okay? If you're, hey, we're all British, some British people are rich, some British people are poor, some British people don't care about each other very much, but wow, we collect a third of all of our income every year in tax, and we spend it on healthcare, we spend it on education. So it's never gonna be perfect, but could we get more down that road? And what I'm saying is we are more down that road now with COVID-19 than we were before. In other words, vaccines got to Ghana three months after they got to the UK. We had never been so advanced down the road of saying we need to work together as a world. But is there more work to do? Wow, there's a lot more work to do. Well, what I like about your book is that it's divided into principles. Each chapter is basically a principle. So it's kind of like a blueprint for how to build a more unified world, which is interesting. I try to set out the things that we really should agree on, right? Mm -hmm. Without that being that everyone has to agree with me on everything. Because at the end of the day, when you're building a community... <laughs> even if it's a small community, let alone 7.4 billion, you know, the entirety of mankind, we're not going to agree on everything. So for example, you know, we don't all have to agree on how much the level of taxation should be. You do in your country have to agree on that because you need to actually tax people at a certain level. But we could across the world have some countries which are more right-wing, some which are more socialist. So we don't have to agree on everything. You know, we're not going to convince everyone, people who love immigration and are products of immigration like me are not going to convince all of the people who want to reduce immigration. But what are the things that we really do need to agree on? And let's let's set those out um, and, and allow people to have different views uh, within that. Right. Do you want to do you want to talk about maybe one of those that you think is a, a, a good starting point? Maybe the, the first one? Well, immigration is a really uh, important one, right? Because people who want the world to be more united, people who feel a kind of fellowship of mankind beyond their smaller identity, um, tend to support immigration. And, and that's natural and that's okay. Um, but one of the things we have to uh, realize is that if you also want to keep democracy there, if you also want to bring people with you, um, immigration 
liberalization may not be the thing you should lead with if you want to realize the world that you want to realize. And what that means is that in my view, you know, a lot of us, and by us, I mean, you know, people who I call, I use the word globalist, even though it's an insult to some, I think we should bring that word back, you know, uh, for globalists, you know, a lot of us are arguing on the wrong issue. If the majority of people want a reduction in immigration, we should let that, let them have it and, and keep working on those things, which actually will make them not want to reduce immigration over the long term. And immigrant by definition is someone from a different nation someone from outside if we can build a feeling that humanity is more at one people won't see foreigners as immigrants so much there you know if if you live in uh you know a country like america you know you know new york and seattle are a long way away from each other but they consider themselves to be part of the same country now there was a time when maybe black people didn't have equal rights somehow they were in a way foreigners even within america over time that's changed over time we can make people from other countries seem less foreign and we don't need to open the doors to immigration tomorrow to make that happen in fact opening the doors to immigration more and more is what's causing a lot of the anxiety that's causing the pushback so i suggest people focus away from immigration in the short term into other things um, that can actually help us win the argument and actually remove that anxiety about immigration. Other things like what? Well, taxation is one that we can work on. You see, one of the reasons that globalist is a bad word is because people think of globalists as those rich people who have no affinity to any country and who are making money everywhere and paying tax nowhere. And that's a reality. There are wealthy individuals, there are wealthy corporations who are making money everywhere and paying tax nowhere. And the world system, and equally the individual country system, feels unfair as a result. Now, unlike immigration, tax reform, fixing that is something that globalists and non-globalists, people who just care about Lebanon or just care about Egypt, can also get behind. Because even if you only care about Egypt and getting Egyptians' hospitals working, you need rich Egyptians to be paying tax in Egypt. Equally, if you want to fix the global system, you also care about this issue. So that, that's something we can agree on. And the, and, and the proof of that is that there is progress being made. Um, you know, organizations like the G20, the OECD, the Americans on working on their own have done a huge amount of work to try and crack down on the uh, on rich people parking their money in a way that it's not detectable or rich corporations not being able to pay tax. But there's so much more that needs to be done. And so that if, if we focused more on that issue, I know tax can seem boring, but ultimately it's the basis of pooling our resources in order to ensure a better life for everybody. It's the basis of any state. And so fixing that will make people much less scared of globalization and the processes that are um, that ultimately we want to continue, which are bringing humankind closer together. Ideologically, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, your argument is that if life is good in your country, why would you want to immigrate to another country? Um, but I think a lot of people would call the 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 actual uh, application of it kind of uh, socialism and that makes a, it's another word that gets people all worked up and it's crazy because 
you know, some countries are called socialist and they're actually less socialist than the U.S., for example, which, in fact, because they have pretty high taxation, is in some ways a socialist uh, system. But um, also this assumes that the government that you're paying taxes to, if you're able to collect them from the wealthier uh, individuals, that that system will make the optimal use of those funds, which is not always a given. As you know, there are a lot of governments around the world that are um, failed governments and are, that are not out for the interests of the people. So I guess that's a, another issue that needs to be approached, uh, maybe with one of your other principles. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, you, you, you present some of the, you know, quite well, some of the, uh, some of what people might say, um, but those counter arguments don't stand up. So firstly, on the idea of socialism, there's nothing socialist about rich people also paying ta tax. Guess what? The poor people are paying tax. And I'm not even saying you've got to raise tax overall, but the, the system whereby if you're super rich, you don't pay anything at all because you've managed to hide your money somewhere, that's not social. That's Countering that is not socialism. That's just called fairness. Um, now, at what level you set your tax is a completely different story. So that's number one. There's nothing socialist at all about, about not allowing the rich people to escape. One of the things that caused the French Revolution is the fact that in France, before the French Revolution, the nobles didn't used to pay tax. If you were in, if you were from the nobility, you had exemptions on tax, and they overthrew that system because of the huge anger. Um, if you think about the Panama Papers, the number of heads of state or government who were had to resign, you know the, the anger over over these revelations of hidden wealth. You know, we are uh, coming for another French Revolution, but on the global scale, and it's not about socialism; it's about unfairness. Now. On the point of uh, some countries being corrupt, of course, some governments don't spend tax money as well as others. But the solution is not to remove government altogether. And without taxation, you have no government at all. They have no money unless they just steal from the people, which is even worse. So yes, of course, it's not enough just to give uh, money. You need good governance as well. But at the same time, um, the rich people not paying tax is part of the problem of corruption. It's not. It's uh, you know. Uh, it's not part of the solution. Saying, well, I don't trust my government to so let me let me just uh, make it even poorer. Right. So, in effect, the bigger solution would be financial reforms because the problem is there's so many loopholes that people in positions of power have access to. So, how do you close those holes? But I mean, we could talk the about this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just just quickly, I mean, the answer to your question is the principle of uh, global governance, of international affairs, is that other countries can do their own thing as long as they don't harm me. If you invade me, if you <laughs> harm me, then I have a right in the international system to expect you to stop that or for some redress. And the point about taxation is that if you are a wealth, uh, uh, if you are a tax haven, okay, if you have zero tax and allow people to park their, mon their money in your country, you are harming me. So being a tax haven is harming other countries because all of the billionaires in my country are, are just parking their money in your country and I now can't fund my hospitals. And so recognizing that and, and, and actually saying it, you are not allowed to be a tax haven um, 
It's it's tiny little jurisdictions and countries. It's Luxembourg. It's the Cayman Islands. It's 0.01% of the world's population, a landmass, which are these microstates that create conditions that allow wealth to flee from the others. If you stop that from happening and have a global system of rules of how uh, wealth is reported, then the rich would have nowhere to run uh, when it comes to trying to evade uh, taxation. So so what do you propose, uh, Hassan? Uh, perhaps sanctions on the Cayman Islands or even a full-blown military attack? <laughs> no, you definitely wouldn't have a military attack because ultimately these are economic issues. When faced with uh, economic uh, pressure that was more than the economic advantages, no sensible country would continue in an economic policy. Um, so you don't need uh, any. You don't need to consider taking this economic question into the military realm. But countries first need to agree, uh, okay, on uh, that that these are the rules um, that it is unacceptable to have uh, a zero taxation and wealth and secrecy over over uh, wealth. Um, and then uh, countries that don't uh, continue to abide by those rules, you know, presumably you don't trade with them. I mean, this is a decision for countries to make, obviously, but you, it's very easy to make it not worth it, not not mm -hmm. worth their while mm -hmm. to continue with that policy. Well, perhaps. Um it's great. I think a lot of people think about these things in kind of abstract terms. It's great that you kind of laid it out in such an organized way. Um, and being who you are, you know, I think people would be more likely to consider it as, you know, serious things to think about. Um, do you know if Bill or Melinda have read your book? So, yeah, it's important to say my book was written in a personal capacity, right? So none of the things I'm saying, none of the views I'm, ex I'm expressing are the views of the foundation or Bill and Melinda Gates. But Bill Gates did read my book. Um, he, he said he enjoyed it a lot. Uh, there's a quote from him on the on the cover. Um, sadly, he, he read it after the cover of the hardback was finalized. But in the paperback that's just come out, um, it, 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 it's, it's there. Um, but he actually he wrote me a long email saying that he enjoyed it and, and giving me some some thoughts about specific areas. So that was, um, you know, even if the my audience was only one for such an influential person to have read it, um, someone I also respect and admire was enough for me to be to think it was a worthwhile project. Thank you so much for being with us today. Best of luck with all your incredible projects. Thank you so much. It's really uh, it's fun to talk about it. Thanks for taking the time. It was so much fun. Good luck. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Check out Hassan's book, The Responsible Globalist. Maybe send a copy to your government officials as a gift. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your way out. Take care.